everybody. How you doing? It is Pierre Hulsebus and we, we are here. We're here. It's, it's Monday. You know what that means? It's podcast day. It's always on Mondays for whatever reason. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Pierre Hulsebus, and uh, and this is my podcast, Hustle is the Hack. I am Pierre Hulsebus, and during the next hour or so, we're going to help you get your game on, your selling game. I'm here to help you identify, acquire, and retain the most valuable asset that you can have in the world if you're in business. What is that? It is a customer Without a customer, nothing happens. It's just a club of grumpy people. That's all your business is. If you don't have customers, nothing happens, of course, until somebody sells something. It all starts with customers. And sadly, it comes to an end when you don't have any more customers. So whoever dies with the most customers win. So how do you do this? How do I do this? How do I do hustle is a hack? And what is going on here? What is the deal? What is the happening? Well, we take proven methods and models and add a pinch in my 30 years of selling information technology experience. You know, I'm an old dude. I've been doing this for a little bit. And, uh, you know, we mix that all together in my patent pending Pierre stack of stuff magic blender. It's available from Ronco. Anyways, <laughs> well, what you do is you mix that all together. You read my blog, you spit out some amazing analysis and business analysis. Uh, and, you know, all in the period of 60 minutes, hopefully we'll have a little fun. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and you know what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer and then Hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Hey, we're back. All right. All right. Hey, welcome back. Again, my name is Pierre Hulsebus and welcome to Hustle is the Hack. I hope you're having a great day. It is Monday Actually, Monday, October 25th, 2021, we are on podcast number 11. You know, it goes to 11. That's what I say. It goes to 11. So um, as is our practice, we have really two segments of our show. What we love to do is we go through the awesomely curated stack of stuff, and we also talk about customer stuff, customer things, tips and tricks. So I'm going to start off with the tips and tricks component of what we're talking about. And today, we just finished up a series of 27 things you can do to improve customer retention. I'm going to kind of double down on that. I'm going to talk a little more 
about um, customer retention from one of my heroes, uh, which is Jeffrey Gittimer. If you have not uh, read any of his books, you should have. He's the author of 13 best-selling books, including The Sales Bible, The Little Red Book of Selling, and The Little Golden Book of Yes. And uh, he, this guy is a kook, uh, a little nutty fella is what he is. Um, he's awesome. Um, he uh, he's he actually kind of inspired me many years ago. I saw him in the '90s um, in Grand Rapids. Come, uh, he came and he um, had uh, um, articles. This is back before blogging was a big deal. He had articles in the Business Journal and stuff like that. And so he's he's a really good fella. Um, he started out selling the probably the most difficult sales territory that you can imagine, which is he sold photocopiers uh, in Manhattan, uh, New York City, like one of the busiest business uh, districts uh, in in the world, and obviously super competitive. So. Uh, anyways, he has some tremendous insight. And uh, one of the things that is a, a kind of a revelation to a lot of people, and I will just continue to hammer on this uh, for all of you, which is loyalty. Customer loyalty is priceless. And uh, customer loyalty is really the the what we're looking for. We're not looking for a customer just to buy something once. We're looking for ways to engage with them over a period of time, over and over again. That's where we uh, want to to get our relationship with our customer because it is a testament to how well I am doing. It's not so much important about the customer uh, and how good they are. We talk about um, qualifying customers, of course. We need to do a good job at qualifying customers during our sales process. But when we look at the operation of our business, customer loyalty is the measure of how well you're running your business. If customers, we can have the greatest sales pitch in the world and they come in and we convince them that we're really great. We have maybe a great marketing message and our sales part is really great. But when we start our business and start to take care of customers, the measure of how well we do that isn't a customer satisfaction survey. It is a loyalty survey. And it is, do they stick with you? Will they retain, will you be able to retain them? And customers that you're not able to retain, that means you just have to go out and find somebody to replace them. And uh, so what a lot of companies go, hey, my sales is great. Things are going really well. We we close 80% of our deals that we propose. Well, great. Um, well, uh, is that enough to grow your business? Uh, because you're losing them out the back door because you're not able to retain them. And so all of your sales wins mask the fact often that you're losing customers on the other side of your business and you're ultimately not really growing customers. So the whole name of the game is to grow your customer base. And uh, so one of the things, so that is one of the tips of the week. Change your surveys to loyalty-based questions and responses. In most cases, all you need to do is add the words why or how in front of your existing customer satisfaction questions like why are you happy? Not are you happy, yes or no, but why are you happy? Or how do you like working with our team? Like specifically, be specific and um, that is an important thing because what we're talking again about is not just the, mm, that bowl of soup was awesome. You're asking the customer to come back in the restaurant to go tell a friend, this place has awesome soup and I'm going to go back and have another bowl of soup. That is if I'm in the soup business, you know. So you want to ask your customer, not just are you happy? Did you like the soup? Yes or no. You want to go, why do you like the soup? Help me reproduce that. Um, soup. Maybe I can come up with different versions of the soup and, you know, I can extend and maybe get other people in there. So you just adding the words, why, why are you happy or how do, uh, how to in front of those questions in those customer satisfaction surveys, those are things that you can do that really help you understand the mechanism of loyalty better. You want to have the staff necessary to document and discern the information. So we are right now, I mean, I live in West Michigan, and uh, it's kind of a sad decline that we're seeing in kind of the companies that were at the edge. A lot of retailers are having a hard time finding entry-level workers to come work in retail. So the wages here in West Michigan to work at McDonald's are going up 15 
$18 an hour for frontline workers. And uh, they're still not able to get those. Uh, we were at a, we we're up on the north end of Grand Rapids this last weekend, and we we're looking for a cup of coffee. It's just simple. We had time between appointments, and so we're going to go to a place, a uh, pretty popular place, Panera's big national company. Um, they closed down in the afternoon because they don't have enough staff. Literally, Panera's is closed, and it's on one of the busiest intersections in the city of Grand Rapids, uh, up on Alpine Avenue. 40,000 people drive in front of that place every day and uh, they can't get enough people to take orders. That is sad. And uh, so you really need to have the staff necessary to document and discern the information. Your customers will be answering in sentence form. That means somebody will have to read the answers, transpose them into a computer and distribute them to the people they affect. You know, you really need to pay attention to the results of this information and lean into that. And so part of it is making it part of your systems that, uh, you know, when you close uh, order or when a customer gets a return, just make it a ubiquitous part of the data gathering that you do. You know, meet regularly as a team to determine what needs to change. Know that things need to change. You just embrace change. Make it part of the culture. We are always in a state of change because customers' needs change all the time. And so if I open my business based on one thing, I want to lean in and understand what's the next thing that that customer wants to have. And this is the secret of loyalty. Once you create an awesome experience with your customers and they come back, if you can offer them something in addition that, hey, I, I just reduced the cost of selling that other thing. And so if you can broaden the products that you sell, then you reduce the cost of selling per product. Again, making more money. Uh, so you lower the cost of sales when you have loyal customers. And so that's why you want to be a kind of listening to your customers. You want to meet regularly and go, something needs to change. It's the mindset of an editor. Every time I, I, I I'll tell you a story, I worked for a uh, very excellent uh, fella. I, it was a boutique consulting uh, company that I worked for. And the gentleman that ran the company uh, was just really him and me. He came out of desktop publishing and was a publishing and an editor and created a tremendous marketing copy and was a really excellent man. I learned so much from him. And one of the things that I learned the hard way is the, um, the mindset of an editor. He uh, would take what I was writing and he, I wrote a lot of training manuals and, and uh, copy for customers internally systems on customer systems. And I would write that up and then he would just take his red pen and just chop that thing up. And I would just get so hurt that he was editing my, you know, my heart and soul was being put on the page and he was just gutting all of my best work. And he's like, you know, a, it's just a discipline that you're in. It's a discipline. It's a professional discipline. 20% of what you write, you need to, you need to take away. And that it forces a certain discipline of you being concise and focused. And so it's not a knock. It's not like, oh, we need to change because we're bad. No, we need to change because that's the discipline that we're in. We're in a business and customers needs change. And if we don't change, if it's not part of our, our kind of discussion internally, and our mindset of growing into new parts of business, then we're just going to die on the vine. And there's very few places other than like coffee shops and donut places uh, that make the exact same thing they made, uh, you know, 40 years ago. And there's some of those around and that's awesome. Uh, but uh, anyways, so I just suggest meeting regularly to determine what needs to change. Um, have the money and the staff necessary to turn that into action. So what we're talking about is um, the ways, you know, of doing things differently. Most of the time, new ideas aren't implemented because we lack a budget or it's evil twin. We lack the manpower. So you need to invest in change. You need to look at it like I have a portfolio of investments. And uh, so some of those investments are going to pay off and some of them are not. And it's okay to take some risks and try some stuff. 
you have loyal customers and if you have a you know a a culture of listening you and you're saying hey some customers like this let's give it a try you know and that's fine if it doesn't work but it's what's awful is to not try anything you know and so make that part of your budget part of the time that uh, you have where you're implementing ideas uh, into the system because you you want to set aside some budget or you have the manpower to do the work. If not, you will just stagnate and customers' needs move and change and you are stuck in something else. And this is why loyalty is important because customers can be super happy. They can love what you're doing and then something better comes along and they just leave. And they don't... Um, because they're not loyal. They may be satisfied, but they're not loyal to you. So we need to adjust our, our budgets to um, focus on uh, customer retention budgets. And so advertising and customer retention budgets should be equal. Okay, listen to this. It should be equal. Um, this may be the hardest task. Take half of your advertising budget, budget and spend it on existing customers. Create People talking about you, not a bunch of self-righteous drivel about how good you are. What you want to get is customers telling you how good you are and telling their friends how good you are. You know, do do you have an MVP kind of program? Do you have a program that listens to existing customers and rewards them? So think about your airline. Think about your airlines. Airlines have figured this out. The airlines spend a lot of money to keep you in their um, good graces and uh, to keep uh, them in my good graces, rather. So I'm a Delta guy. And so you have 200,000 Delta miles. That means I'm going to stay on Delta. I'm going to try to spend my money with Delta because I've decided to go all in on Delta. And, And the same thing with my hotel program. You know, the same thing. And so given a choice, I'm always going to pick Delta because I get to gang up on all my miles. And so they spend a lot of money that costs them money. And so uh, it's great to have, you know, kind of cool advertising. But, uh, you know, when we're going on a trip, I'm like, nope, hey, we're we're taking Delta. And guess what? Delta does a really good job by me. I'm a platinum traveler. So I get all these nice perks. And whenever I travel with family, we go into the, you know, into the lounge and, you know, we're, we're treated really well. We get all the nice little upgrades and stuff like that. And so this is because we are loyal customers of, of them. And so adjust your budgets and advertising to focus on retention. And if you're, if you're doing zero with existing customers, you better, uh, better not do that. You better do some changing, <laughs> um, focus on those, um, existing customers. Benchmark and document all of the practices and develop best responses for each one of them. And that is a thing. I call it the playbook. You want to have a playbook that says when a customer returns something, this is what we do. When a customer handles, um, you know, um, they're dissatisfied um, with something, this is how we issue a credit. How do we handle the top 25 customer, let's say, interactions in your business and retain and or excuse me, train our our people to do it the best way every single time? And so this is the thing when you um, especially if you're in a small business, this is really, really helpful, really important. This is why a franchise works really well, because what a franchise does is they have solved a lot of these little problems. They know how to handle credits and complaining customers. They have already training done for that. And so they focus on training people to that standard. And so take that same mindset, document the best way to handle the top 25 customer, let's just call them interfaces in the business. The interfaces, those are the way they interact, whether that's, you know, they send me an email, you know, what's our standard for responding to customer complaints via email? What does the template look like for that? How do we escalate that internally? Every person handles the same situation differently if we don't have that in place. And they all do great. Um, you know, if you hire smart people, they're going to do the best effort they they have. And that's good, but it's going to be hit and miss. And you're not creating an ongoing, dependable relationship with a customer. And that's what loyalty is all about. It's dependability. 
Like a customer can depend on you. That's why they stick with you. So if I'm in the market for, you know, a donut and I know the places in town that provide me that awesome donut, I am loyal to them because I know what to expect every single time. And I get that same repeatable experience and pleasure of eating a you know, a caramel fried cinnamon with nuts, you know, from DNW, uh, which is the one place they're going to Steenstra's Bakery and getting um, the Dutch Bonquette. I just know exactly what that experience is going to be. I know the joy of having my friends over for dinner and and serving that pastry at, at, at the end of dinner. Um, so I know what that is. And so I'm relying on that and it's, I can count on it. So that's the thing of benchmarking all of your practices and developing good responses to each one of them and then train our people to do it that way. That's working on the business. There's, um, you know, when you're in a small business, when you're in a small nonprofit, There's two ways to look at this. One way to look at it is I'm going to work in the business. And um, let's say I run a jewelry store. Um, I am employing myself. I am the employee. I'm the owner and I'm the employee, Um, the number one employee. I manage that and people work for me and I work in the business. And so I set the standard and everybody follows me. And then when they don't do it the way that I want them to do it, I tell them, hey, you're not doing it the right way. You know, I'm working in the business. I'm kind of the lead uh, clerk in the business, let's say. Now, the problem with that model is it's hit and miss because when you're not there, you can't be there 24 hours a day. Somebody else is doing the stuff and they're trying to emulate you, but maybe they don't know exactly what to do. And um, in other businesses like professional services businesses like a doctor's office, The doctor can't do that. The doctor's best time is spending in front of patients, not figuring out how to manage the billing system. So you have to divide your attention here. You can work in the business or you can choose to work on the business. And working on the business as a business owner has more value, has more value than working in the business. That is unless and until, let's say I'm a speaker That's one thing. If I get paid to write a book, you know, that uh, professional skill is it. But you need people around you to get the business going and to grow your business. And uh, so anyways, um, I guess the other component is, um, you know, we want to we're talking about documenting each person handles the same situation a little differently. And uh, so we want to document the best way to handle all of these 25, you know, top 25 interfaces in the business and train our people to do this the best way every single time. This is because there is a, a core principle that many of us lack, which is our businesses. Employees care about themselves first. They don't care about you. They can care about an idea. They can buy into a feeling, but... Your employees care about themselves. It really is about them. You, you know, train your people to do the best they can be for themselves before you brainwash them with a bunch of policy crap. They want to act out of their own interest. And so you need to find common ground in that interest. And so this is when you're being a leader, you're talking about the ideals. Let's say if I'm doing my, um, there's a place right around the corner from me, Tropical Paradise. They make smoothies, which I love these, you know, filled with spinach and and ginger and pineapple. They make these awesome um things and uh, I love to go over there and get a breakfast they're so refreshing and I feel so healthy when I eat them and uh, they can't get enough people in their business and so now they shut down in the morning can you believe it so they're only open like 12 o'clock at lunchtime to like four one half of a shift you know some of these companies are in a death spiral I, I don't know if they'll last if they can do that because you still have the same rent night but you could just cut your time in half anyways so the thing that they're doing because employees care about themselves. One of the ways that you can work on employee retention and, um, and helping employees work out of there is to make that about health. Like the people that work here care about health. That's like a lot of health clubs work that way. 
what unites them is not just the service to customers, but they have a common communal interest around healthy lifestyles. And so it's that thing, the employees, yes, they care about themselves. They, they're in it for the money because you're paying them, but they have higher ideals that you can, can connect to about what, and whatever that is. And, you know, this is about being purpose driven in everything that we do. And I'll pull it out. It's a being a purpose, having a purpose driven life. And I don't care if you're, um, and I, this is, these are values, and this is that hustle part of this whole hack. This is what I'm talking about. These are the values that you get from your grandparents and your Dutch uncles and aunts, you know, the, the people that uh, worked on the farm, that um, they are, it is not just about the farm. It is about the family being taken care of on the farm. It is about the community being taken care of through farming. So the thing that you do as a job has to have a higher purpose. You have to be serving something that is higher than just mopping the floor. And this is this concept of excellence, of being excellent at whatever you do, whether that is sweeping the floor. And believe me, I've cleaned my share of toilets. I was a janitor throughout my entire high school career. I worked at, at the high school during the summers, and I had um, jobs in the summer of cleaning toilets and uh, mopping floors and uh, cleaning the church. I did all of that stuff for years and years. And um, because that's where you start, it's just started there. That's what, what can I do? I, I don't have any job, job skills beside this. And so I got a, a strong back. And uh, so I'll go do that. And so I did those things. And so, you know, you just have excellence and you learn the techniques and you do the best you can in that thing that you are. Because even cleaning a toilet is all about, you know, having uh, having a clean school. This is a school so kids can learn. And so you're connecting into this broader sense. And so employees do care about themselves. And that's the thing to acknowledge. Train your people to be the best they can be for themselves and um, and then if you help them be the best they can be for themselves, then you can teach them the best responses for each situation they're likely to have. So it's part of like if I am in that low wage um, situation where I, I am trying to connect to my employees and and, you know, now it's so competitive they are maybe just in it for the paycheck. Well, that's I, I can't have somebody that's just in it for the paycheck. There has to be something more uh, to connect them to me in my business. And so you're seeing a lot of companies smartly. This is why you see um, places like McDonald's offering tuition reimbursement or English as a second language classes or or child care. So they're not just in it for the paycheck. They're in it because I'm helping them through college. I'm helping them learn English and become a citizen better. Uh, if they go and work at Burger King across the street and they don't offer those additional kind of components, a uh, higher purpose outside of the paycheck, then the and then I'll lose them. So this is why. So these are the six kind of tips around customer loyalty uh, and why it's how you kind of develop that culture inside of your organization that is focused completely and fully on retaining, retaining customers. So with that said, let's uh, take a little bit of a break here. We'll kind of go on and we're going to talk about uh, the stack of stuff right after this one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the, the commercial. Isn't that exciting? I'm monetizing my podcast. It's so great. Hey, we're back. It is time. All right. We are back. It is, uh, it is uh, now time for the stack of stuff. Which is uh, now we return to you now uh, with uh, Pierre Hulsebus and the stack of stuff. So welcome to the Hustle is the Hack podcast. That's right. My name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus. And uh, you know what we're here to do? We're here to have a great time and learn from each other. And I'm going to wave my magic fairy dust and we're going to uh, change the change the order of our service. Uh, right now, and we're going to uh, dive into the um, referred to as the stack of stuff. It's a collection of sales, coaching, and technical information 
that hopefully is leading leading information around uh, you know really how what's going on out there what are some of the things that the mega trends in business that are happening right now uh, that you would want to be aware of and uh, these are leading indicators of where we're going and this is the thing uh, as I was talking about earlier which is all about the next thing it's good to be you know it's good to master the now but it's better to be in position for the next thing you want to be on version one of something you're gonna be in that kind of leading leading change uh, and uh, anyway so we're, I want to talk about some of those things and this is what I do throughout the week as I'm doing just my normal stuff uh, surfing around the interwebs and uh, talking to people I'm making note of those uh, changes that are coming and um, so the first thing in the stack of stuff is a little scary thing yes it is it's a little scary thing it's about climate change and so climate change you know something if you're an older fellow like myself um, this is something that you know we've been hearing about acid rain and all of this I remember having a literally a debate in like fifth grade I I stood up to somebody uh, and had to, a teacher literally, and had a big argument over um, uh, uh, styrofoam, (laughs) believe it or not. I'm like, isn't that made from oil? And like, no, no, it's styrofoam. Like, no, that comes from oil. Yeah, it comes from oil. We need oil. They're like, no, we need, no, we want to get rid of oil. It's like, well, okay, so if you're going to get rid of styrofoam, you know, start there first, find something else. Anyways. So this is, I was already thinking about this as a kid. So this is one area that I've, you know, it's been pretty interesting to me and and seeing uh, changes in business right now around the awareness and impact of operations. And so um, corporations really are under pressure to do something about sustainability and the ability to report on carbon usage is a starting point. So uh, one of the big companies, Microsoft, posted and started posting their carbon footprint publicly. And uh, they reference a lot of different customers, of course, around scope and uh, direct and indirect and uh, different scopes of whether that's operation of the upstream component of getting things in or the downstream of disposal of equipment and what's the direct operational cost around power induction and using power or the generation of power to keep on your operations. So there's just this kind of three scope model that's happening right now. And so a lot of what you can do then is start to come up with a methodology to report that out publicly. And so there is an emissions dashboard. And I've seen this in different business applications. And uh, the more that I work in my business, this is becoming more and more um, attention is being paid with this. And a lot of it has to do with uh, younger people that um, were all grow grew up in, um, you know, the um, inconvenient truth, saw it as young people, and now they're in areas of leadership and influence. And this is kind of how a lot of change happens. They get in, you know, get inspired as children and, and younger people. And then now here we are, almost 20 years after that, um, close to 20 years after Inconvenient Truth was shown. And, you know, th- those kids are, you know, in their 30s now. And those young people, um, and, you know, we're 20 years after that. And uh, and so now the impact of that is starting to show where people are really starting to look at what is the carbon footprint of our organization and are we making parts? And so that's part of our value or brand. And we're starting to see companies uh, make that. So it's really interesting. You know, have different ways that as a salesperson, you can appeal to customers. You um, you want to build uh, different value into the product or service that you're providing. But if, um, you know, if I show up in a uh, electric vehicle to do, let's say I'm doing house cleaning service, and I show up in um, a diesel truck, you know, that sends a message. If I show up in a um, electric vehicle, that sends another message, doesn't it? And so folks where they're very sensitive and wanting to, uh, you know, do what they can to help the planet, 
and to reduce our carbon footprint when you show up with an electric vehicle and 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 can advertise that you know this is an important value that you have also um, you're just creating more value in your product and i'm not saying i'm not being crass about it i'm just saying this is an important thing and uh, we should be aware of it um, right wrong or otherwise right so this is going to become part of our reporting um, diversity inclusion is a very similar component um, companies report publicly on their diversity and inclusion numbers in terms of hiring and whatnot because their goals that they set and they want their customers to know that this is important to them and um, because that resonates with certain customers and so that's it's part of part of their their effort and energy is 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 focused on that and uh, so that's great I think social pressure is great it's this is one of the things that's that's making um, you know the the planet better and we're reducing our our, our greenhouse we're to be stewards of the planet uh, I know a lot of my <clears throat> People in my community aren't necessarily always the, you know, they kind of look at this as kind of mumbo jumbo and and uh, uh, government overreach and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, we are called as a Christian, I'm a Christian person, and we were, um, Adam was told to tend the garden. And uh, so we're tending the garden. We want to we want to be good stewards of the things that we have been given responsibility over, and we want to take that Boy Scout initiative of you know leaving the place better than we found it. And so you know that that means um, I do have a responsibility uh, to make sure that <clears throat> I'm doing my best in this area, and and these values are shared by so many people. So it's really interesting to see how companies are beginning to um, advertise that and make that part of their, you know, initiatives and approach and being uh, having a certain level of transparency go, oh, we got a long way to go, but it's something that's important for us. And again, this goes back to just like it is with customers. Um, um, Hey, when you make a mistake, you admit it and you say, this is what we're doing to fix it. And so it's the same thing. This is what's happening. A lot of companies have not going to run away from this anymore. You cannot run and hide all of the big oil companies, I've worked a lot in that industry, they're reporting this. How much energy do we um, do we spend to generate energy? Like the production and delivery of oil has, takes a lot of energy and has a big impact in the environment. And so they're going, hey, we're going to be carbon neutral. They're like, it's really interesting. The, the carbon emission that comes from the usage of their product is one thing, but they're saying, hey, for us to create this uh pump this oil out of the ground and get it to a refinery um that we're um you know we're good with we're good we're going to do that at zero or negative uh impact which is amazing there's already one company up in the northern um sea up in north atlantic Um, you have these offshore um, places but they offset their uh production uh with um um uh you know, the big windmills that sit in the big wind generator that are up in the North Sea also. So, yes, they they pump oil out of the ground and the use of that is um, uh, creates carbon, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> but they uh, during that uh, production of energy are moving all to electric. And so and they're generating their own electricity uh, using wind power. So they're getting to that net, net uh, neutral um a carbon emission for their production. And these are the kind of things that are going to happen. And uh, as you, I think this is, honestly is one of the biggest megatrends um, in, in business right now, electric cars and the electrification and uh, is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's going to be a big disruptor is what it is. It's what's happening is going to be a big disruption. And uh, so that's uh, the second uh, in the stack of stuff. Boop, boop is in Bloomberg. It says the coming electric uh, car disruption that nobody's talking about. Well, what are they talking about? They're, um, they do a nice story about a, uh, a company that's um, in Trenton, which is just outside of Detroit, that um, creates and builds something called fuel rails. Fuel rails are um, part of the delivery of gas in your uh, combustion engine, in your gasoline engine. It um, basically is this high-pressure um, hose system, and it's forged out of aluminum or steel, and um, it is where the high-pressure fuel um, injection happens. So it takes uh, from the fuel pump, which 
pushes that up just kind of like it's like if you think about inside of your car is like an espresso machine it takes that that gas and it puts it at a super duper high pressure like 10 10 20 bars of pressure which is atmospheres of pressure so just like a uh, an espresso machine that high high pressure it takes that gas and and then it goes out through the fuel injectors and so that fuel rail is a highly engineered piece of steel uh, that um, it's uh, it's built in a grimy uh, it's uh, you know forged piece of uh, of steel. So uh, with that said, uh, guess what? Who doesn't need those? Um, Tesla's never bought a fuel rail. The entire fuel system um, of spark plugs and fuel systems that um, deliver and store the fuel. There's a lot of engineering, believe it or not, that goes into all of that. Um, I have friends, a lot of friends, obviously, that are in that industry. Um, AC Delco, which makes the spark plugs, um, they're a, a fantastic manufacturer. Um, it was just about 10 years ago that they um, they delivered a literally 100% of every spark plug that they delivered to General Motors in that year was delivered without a flaw. They had zero returns from uh, from General Motors. Um, if you're not aware, when you supply um, uh, assets and, and stuff to General Motors and Ford and all the big manufacturers, um, you're the sub supplier. You create your product and you deliver it to them. And then they, when they receive it, they inspect it. They randomly inspect these to make sure they're up to the high quality standards uh, that are needed so that when that car drives off the lot, it doesn't need another spark plug. AC Delco. And every sub supplier um, has flaws in manufacturing. Stuff gets through the cracks, and um, you can't inspect everything. So uh, by hand, so you use machines and help do you know fancy machines with tolerances and stuff like that. Uh, so there's a lot of people that are employed in the whole um, supply chain around the fuel systems that are used in these large, you know, you have a 600 pound block of steel sitting in front of every single car on the road today, this big piece of steel that sits in those cars. Well, guess who doesn't need those? Electric cars don't need those. And so, you know, they're um, right now in the United States, about 4 million people are involved in servicing making and selling cars in the United States. And some jobs won't go away. There'll still be need for dealerships and tire shops. But the um, the transfer and changes from places like we're talking about in this article of making fuel rails from steel are going to go away. Like their, their business is going to go down. And there is a, uh, a prep that's happening already that um, with Ford and Chrysler saying, hey, we're going to, uh, Fiat Chrysler said it's targeting over 70% of sales in Europe, over 40% in the United States to be low emission vehicles, either electric or hybrid by 2030. That's 10 years from now, people. Within 10 years, 40 to 70% of the cars that we're going to be buying new will be electric. And so it is a huge change that's going to happen. That means there's a lot of people working in that supply chain that are going to lose their job. The United Auto Workers is estimating that the shift in electricity could rely, rely just in short term, 35,000 union jobs. That's just taking a pretty conservative approach at the beginning here of doing that. These electric companies, um, Chrysler is reopening a plant uh, to produce an electric version of the Jeep Wagoneer, and it's going to make 6,000 jobs. So you've got places that are going to lose jobs, and you have places that are going to get new jobs. But in the end, I'm going to tell you this very quickly, there it's going to take less people to make a fancy electric car than it's going to take to make a big car. So if I'm looking at a Ford F-150, the electric version versus the um, the gas version, it's going to be way less. It's going to be way less people that it makes. Maybe 20% less people it's going to take to create that job. The United States uh, auto parts industry is probably going to lose 30% of its workforce. Nearly 300,000 jobs are going to go away. 
<clears throat> that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Um, and it's going to uh, cost, uh, cost in jobs. So, you know, you're driving your Tesla down there and you're thinking, hey, we're saving the planet, but you could be putting somebody out of work at the same time. And uh, it's really interesting. It's really interesting what's going to happen here. This disruption is going to happen. Like we say, change change is, uh, is uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just coming like a freight train and uh, it's going to be um, coming faster and faster as we go. Whoa. There you go. There's number two. All right. Stack of stuff. Number three, the top 10 IOT use cases. So, yeah, let's shift a bit here and talk about IOT. This is another emerging technology idea that's happening now. IOT or Internet of Things is what IOT stands for. If you don't know what that means, that means the adoption of various things that are connected to the you know, to the internet, to the internet. So um, in your home, you have things that are connected to the internet, like your TV, some appliances, like our refrigerators can be connected to the internet. We have our doorbells and they're all connected to the internet now. And uh, all the stuff that's happening around that. So that's one whole thing of kind of the consumer. But what are, uh, where are people really, 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 really going for IoT and what's happening? So there's really two different ways to think about Internet of Things use cases and where it's being used and what the trend and adoption is for this. So the first one is to look at the operations of a business, the smart operations. Like we're getting to this place where, like our refrigerator in our home, if you have a Samsung refrigerator, an LG refrigerator, you can have a little app on your phone and it tells you, hey, the door is open. Okay, cool. And uh, it is just uh, basically you're doing what's called remote asset monitoring. You're reading the data. You may be able to change some of the temperatures from your phone, uh, but basically you are remote asset monitoring. You're keeping track of stuff. And the adoption of this is just on the way up. It's very big. Remote, um, that's the, the trend, is uh, remote asset monitoring. That is the number one use of Internet of Things, and it's going very um very high. The second one is IoT-based process automation. Again, operations, whether we're in our business, not only can we collect the data from the, the field and from the devices, we can use computers to help make decisions around when this um, um, temperature goes down, then I need to turn the heater on. And so that is a very basic uh, automation of a process. Here's a sensor telling me this machine is slow, so I need to, and I want to go faster, so I need to send a signal over to the motor to turn it up and make it go faster. So these are process automations where you can use the data to make decisions. And so, you know, back in the day, this is always interesting, right? You always have, uh, we always have Star Trek and we always have Scotty down in the, down in the engine room and they're just, you know, running around, scurrying around trying to fix, you know, the enterprise and to make this thing, uh, make this thing work. And, uh, you know, it's always, hey, when are we going to be back up? Hey, I don't know, you know, Captain, this thing is going to, we're just, barely making it we're barely making it we're just holding it together and there's just people running all over down there diet you know fixing machines and stuff like that well you know he <laughs> they forgot the whole iot thing apparently roddenberry did when he wrote star trek that most of these machines just are going to fix themselves and they are going to um they you know the dilithium crystal um chamber is needs to be realigned Apparently, a computer can't do that. You need a guy down there realigning the dilithium crystals, and we needed Spock to go in and um, you know to do do the work that uh, killed him and all of this. Like this this concept that the machines will just actually work themselves and figure it out themselves, and we will just use computers to help kind of managing that. Like that's been happening for a long time, many many years, and it's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And so I don't need to know um, how to realign the dilithium crystal. I've trained an AI to realign the dilithium crystal chamber, and uh, it will just do it itself. I don't need that um, thing. So <clears throat> anyways, that's the, 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 the other use case is this concept of IoT or Internet of Things-based process automation that uh, will we'll have these different uh, things kind of working themselves. And... Uh, we will be able to control and remotely manage them. 
Okay, uh, on that list is really interesting. Uh, gets into kind of the supply chain and connected products. So fleet management and location tracking and um, um, ma- monitoring goods and the condition of those goods throughout the supply chain um, are a, a really big part. And then on-site track and trace, like keeping track of where stuff is. All of these are on the rise also. So keeping track of where stuff is. So this is what is happening is that devices like our phones can obviously keep track of where we're at. And that can be used to give me directions. Well, you can also put trackers similar to that in GPS in the freight handling equipment, like in the in the. Um, in the in the big you know the big trucks and on top of all of the shipping containers they can just basically phone home and say this is where i'm at this is my condition my air conditioning inside of this and i'm at this temperature this is how fast i'm going so um fleet and vehicle tracking and maintenance is right now at about 30 percent, which means there's an incredible amount of growth uh in this area that's going to happen where products are connected and um, you know if the automotive industry showed us anything and if we can learn from them this is it the supply the tightness in their supply chain of how they know where products are I mean this goes back into the early 80s when they um, started to manage advanced shipping notices and an EDI system electronic data interchange system that allowed um, manufacturers that were sending products into there to say that in truck 47 coming on this uh, tractor is these parts for tomorrow. And um, this is why, uh, you know, if you ever wondered why all of the automotive is all around one location, like in the United States, it's centered in these large centers of like Michigan, or if I go down to Mexico and Mexico City, Guadalajara, these are places where there's uh, not just a big factory that makes the cars, but also all of the the sub-suppliers. Uh, they all have to be close by because the manufacturers don't keep any inventory in their systems. They don't pay for inventory. You don't like order a year's worth of parts and then stick them in the warehouse. You're ordering parts for tomorrow. And then they deliver them to you. It's just in time and you're building that stuff and you don't really have any inventory. So you have to keep track of where everything is. The benefit of that is like you can easily then um, in the middle of the year, you know, change your um, operations from one brand to another or colors or responses in the market. And it lowers the cost and risk of trying to predict what products need to be sold. You basically just make the products as the customers order them. Pretty cool. And uh, so anyways, this is um, this is uh, the Internet of Things helps manage that entire process. So the entire supply chain of vehicle location tracking and, and track and trace even inside of a building that can help you locate where you're at. So those are some of the awesome use cases for the Internet of Things. Um, a couple uh, other ones, and we'll end on these, which are really, really exciting, uh, <laughs> which is just kind of um, inside of my operation, predictive maintenance and um, quality control and management and asset performance management and optimization. And what this is doing, and this is a big, this is my world, my daily world that I'm in. You know, today when something breaks, um, a customer calls in and says, my thing broke. Can you please send somebody to fix it? And so we do reactive maintenance. And uh, we, we we wait for something to break or just before it breaks to say, hey, um, I'm coming up on the 3,000 miles. Please put gas in my, or oil. I need an oil replacement. Uh, so I, I react to the failure of a product and I get it maintained. Well, guess what? Um, <laughs> when you take Internet of Things sensors on devices, you mix that up with really smart computer systems that learn 
AI systems that say um, that similar kind of stuff. When you get pull out Google Maps, it gives you directions and it sees a accident ahead and it redirects you. Gets get off of this exit and you know drives you around to another place uh, to get uh, to get to your destination. That is predicting the traffic. Well, it's the same thing. It's using signals and data to go. There is a problem that is going to happen. And uh, predictive maintenance, um, the global adoption for that is still low because the technology is pretty new. But this is going to revolutionize the way service businesses work. That I don't need to wait for somebody to push the magic button to say, this is broken, please come and fix me. I can use a machine. Uh, A very simple uh, use case for this is, in the building that you're sitting in right now, you have um, filters. In If you're in an office, you have air filters. All those air filters that are in the building for to maintain the high air quality that you have if you're in a nice new building, they have to be inspected. Those have to be looked at. Somebody has to pull those down. They have to look at them. Does it need to be replaced or not? Um, I have the job at my church. Actually, every month when we have work night, I go out and one of my jobs is to go and inspect all the furnace filters. We have like six furnaces. So I have to go open the furnaces up and look at the furnace filters. That's one of my jobs. And uh, so that's what you do. And uh, so, but if we had a sensor in there, what you find is like half the time, Nothing needs to change because it's only been in church, you know, for on the Sundays and Wednesdays that we have church. And the furnaces haven't been really used um, during the summer. In the winter, of course, they're used a lot more because they're heating the building and not cooling. So we do more heating than cooling. Um, but let's say around Christmas time, you know, we have fewer services or over COVID, we had fewer services. But I'm still out there inspecting the same thing. And so this is the same thing that happens in buildings. The maintenance cost of fixing something is based on the time, not on occupancy or a sensor that says, I think I need to be replaced. So if you had a sensor in every filter that says, I think I need to be replaced, then you went out and and just replaced those ones where the sensor said I need to be replaced and didn't go and do a timed-based maintenance every so many months guess what? You reduce the cost. Studies I've read and actually been involved in doing can reduce the cost of maintaining a building by 30% because much of the building maintenance is done based on time, not on actual usage. And so you have all these companies out there that have done time-based maintenance contracts going out to inspect furnace filters Uh, for example, and other systems internally during COVID. And so these buildings have been shuttered. They've been closed down. Nobody's working in them. And yet they're still out there inspecting furnace filters because they're under contract. So this is the thing. Maintenance is going to be revolutionized with Internet of Things. The stuff is not going to wait for it to get broken. It's going to the machines are going to call in and say, hey, I think I need to be fixed. They're going to pre, um, be predictive in the sense that they won't need a customer to call into a call center. You need to have an IoT listening post in your environment so it can basically listen to those machines and the machines just say, I think I need to be fixed. And then somebody shows up and I'm, I'm here to inspect your air filter. What? We didn't even know it was wrong. something was wrong with it. Yes, it's telling us it needs to be replaced. And so that's, you know, when you do this kind of predictive based maintenance, you have better long term, you know, usage of your assets internally. So it's really interesting, you know, especially post COVID getting that uh, feeling for what's hot and what's not and what's important for both vendors and IoT adopters, you know, vendors should start to prioritize use cases that um, yield a high return rate and high ROI. Um, Those investments in these are going to make a big, big, big difference. IoT adopters can learn from the best practices and, you know, existing users to prevent costly mistakes. And so, you know, getting this right is going to be a big deal. And there's a lot of... um, IoT adoption reports and parts of analytics. Um, we talked about oil and gas companies and energy companies. You know, they're ahead of others. Like I mentioned, they've been doing this for since the 70s. There was a system that was invented back then that allowed them to gather telemetry and historical data. Um, and it's still in use today. Um, but uh, today, this is moving forward. There's just still a small fraction of, of business are right now of companies that are in this uh, right now. So there's so much growth that's going to happen. 
so when you start looking at the um, use cases for this uh, remote monitoring and process automation, this is where there's going to be a tremendous growth. If you're looking at a new career and you're talking to your kid, you know, this is the area of process automation. Basically, what this ends up being is like fancy Lego leagues, if you've ever played with Lego leagues or um um, Minecraft, you know, where you can build, be a builder or a maker in Minecraft. That's the IoT culture. It's all about builder culture. It's about engineering stuff where you take little components that have already been built by somebody like Rockwell Automation or Honeywell and incorporate those into your uh, machines and systems internally and then listen to them and then you make um, choices. You have systems that make choices. So it's not actually super complicated um, computer programming, although that helps. Um, but um, a lot of this using off-shelf hardware of pulling together the data into systems then that are able to make decisions. So a lot of the smart buildings are kind of engineered. It's like, a, think about it, it's like a giant gadget, if you will. And uh, anyway, so that's the that's the the, the idea behind what IoT uh, is going to do for you and your friends. And uh, with with that said, I want to thank you for your time today. We're at the end of our podcast. It is number eleven. We are going to have a special guest next week, and I hope you tune in. It's going to be my first guest that I have on the podcast, The Shape of Things to Come. And uh, it is, I'm so excited. Thank you for being an awesome, loyal customer of mine and coming onto my podcast and allowing me to uh, monetize your ears. And I appreciate it very much. And you have a super awesome day and we'll talk to you real soon.